The views and opinions expressed on coffee and compatibility are those of the podcast host and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Ashi. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Coffee and Compatibility. I am Eric Weimer, and with me, as usual, is the lovely Dr. Kelly Hitchman. How are you, ma'am? It's me. I'm good. I'm good. I am so glad uh, to be with you and with everybody. Uh, you know, uh, Memorial Day is coming up, and per usual, I am doing absolutely nothing but staying in the lovely uh university health hla laboratory but i have it uh i have it on a good record that eric weimer's plans are not surprisingly much more exciting than my own yeah 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 yeah. the little birdie must have told you that uh my family is planning to go to to disney world over the summer um those of you who don't know we are full-fledged straight up go to disney all the time uh people uh my wife and i are definitely disney adults like if you've ever been on a zoom meeting with me my office is surrounded by disney marvel associated paraphernalia this is awesome you're gonna have such a good time i think you should come back and we should do an episode on how to do disney because i i feel like it's gotten really complicated and i don't understand and i would love to go but i'm kind of scared yeah this first off it it is a thing uh and it is kind of complicated and uh we may or may not have offered services to other families and family members and friends that we know of that have gone will be like, well, you got to do X, Y, and Z. And then, oh, yeah, so. I thought you were about to tell me you like had insiders and were gaming the system. I cannot divulge this uh, while we're that, recording. That would have been respectable. <laughs> I love it. Well, I hope you guys have the best of times. Um, Ashi is letting me do a shameless plug. Um, so as folks may or may not know, um, I am a living kidney donor. Uh, I am a pound and a half lighter on one side. And um, I am a group, a member of a group um, called Kidney Donor Athletes. And in 2021, a group of kidney and liver donors uh, did this thing where they advocated big for living donation by showing people that you are not limited in what you can physically do or in your lifestyle after living donation. And they formed a group, um, they called it the One Kidney Climb, and those living donors climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and summited on World Kidney Day. And I found out a few months ago that I have been selected to join the 2024 um, cohort of the One Kidney Climb. So in March of 2024, I will be joining 14 other living donors, and we will climb Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania and summit on World Kidney Day um, to advocate and dispel myths surrounding living donation. Uh, I am in training. Um, I'm calling my training program uh, Kelly to Killy. Uh, other people call it Couch to Killy, but I don't want to admit that, so I'm calling it Kelly to Killy. 
for Mother's Day, my husband bought me a 20 pound weighted vest and a 40 pound weighted vest. And it is my job on weekends to hike the hill country in Texas with my weighted vests as much as I can. I mean, first off, applaud to you for, for doing that is, is uh, an incredible sacrifice and uh, doesn't surprise me at all that uh, someone like you would, would not only do that, but uh, also have the conviction and ability to summon anything that, that you want to do. So um, I can't wait to see how that progresses for you and the others. It is uh, a thrilling adventure, I'm sure. Yeah, we're we're pretty excited about it. Hopefully, I'll be um, able to fill you on on some more details as uh, as time goes by. But we're we're pretty excited. Um, other exciting news in in podcast lore is uh, that we got some great feedback. You guys know Eric especially knows. I love it. Um, when people send in feedback um, about our uh, episodes and our listeners had wonderful things to say about the Carving Your Path Through Ashi when we interviewed Dr. Nicholas Brown, and he is amazing, so I'm not surprised. Um, so uh, Lee Chang said, "Glad, uh, great to hear uh, the expert um, that also feels uncomfortable at the beginning, but learns uh, to get more and more confident as experience builds up. Uh, and Mary Libby um, said that for her, the golden nugget in the discussion was to step out of your comfort zone. Um, so I, I think it sounds like she's experienced yeah. that too. And Heather Eyrick um, has said she really enjoyed hearing all about Dr. Brown and his journey through HLA so far. Uh, she felt that he gave her some really good ideas on how to participate more in ASHI and in her HLA career. So kudos to Dr. Brown it sounds like you are motivating people to get out there and get active in ASHI. Yeah, I mean, not only was is he a phenomenal individual, but um, it's so great when uh, the messages are received by those who sort of need it and need to hear it, especially the, the first one about feeling uncomfortable at the beginning uh, and sort of becoming more and more confident. I think that is the uh, unspoken truth that many of us won't admit to, uh, and so, you know, kudos to Nick for, for crossing that threshold and talking about it with him. That's right. You got difficulties, you take a deep breath and you ask yourself, what would Nick Brown do? <laughs> Amen. Well, folks, we will be right back after this short message with a spot with Dr. Lauren Gregert for a discussion on algorithmic approaches to open allocation. We are just three months away from welcoming you to the ASHI Educational Workshop One in Denver, Colorado. This professional development opportunity is the perfect setting for those who are new to HLA or want to expand their knowledge in the HLA field. There is something for every type of lab and the topics that are covered apply to your daily work. Attend in person to get the full benefits and camaraderie of this workshop. You'll also have the opportunity to network, build relationships and knowledge share in a more intimate setting. The in-person workshop will be held June 29th through July 1st, or join the virtual workshop on July 21st and July 28th. Registration is open now. Visit ashieeducationalworkshops.com. Coffee and compatibility audience, 
please welcome Dr. Lauren Gregert. Dr. Gregert is an assistant professor and associate director of the Histocompatibility and Immunogenetics Laboratory at Tulane University School of Medicine in New Orleans, Louisiana. His research focuses on immunogenomics and clinical informatics in transplantation. Dr. Gregert, may we call you Lauren? Yes, please do. Thank Lauren. you so much for being with us today. Lauren, I am like super excited to talk to you. You're like, you're like the fanboy uh for me in that I love all the stuff that you've been doing in regards to the the informatic approaches to making much more accessible the relatively complex HLA data that that we all deal with. So kudos to you and all the efforts that you've done across a number of stuff. And so with that, um, I'm wondering if you could maybe just start us off by talking about some of the informatic approaches that you've taken through your career so far. <laughs> well, so I started my career uh, in the bioinformatics research department at National Maradona Program, be the match, uh, so which is a stem cell registry. So I was working on tools for uh, unrelated donor search, so really uh, how to identify the best match donor in a huge registry of millions of donors, where the HLA typing is very heterogeneous. So we have typing all the way back from the 1980s that where the typing was done by serology. And then in the 1990s, we had oligo-based typing, which was intermediate resolution typing by DNA methods. And then uh, we we went on and you know, had higher and higher resolution typing, where now we have uh, recruitment typing for donors by next generation sequencing. But the best match for some of these patients might be somebody that was typed um, by serology or uh, intermediate resolution typing. So we want to say which which of those donors is most likely to be a high resolution match that gives the best outcome for a patient. So a lot of the tools uh, are, were, were developed uh, towards that end. Um, so sort of predicting what alleles uh, a donor might have given an ambiguous typing and, and, and uh, looking at the patient typing and say which, which uh, loci are most likely to match, uh, even when the typing is missing. So we're trying to, we, we added in predictions for HLA DPV1 uh, and, and permissibility for that into this uh, match algorithm called a uh, map source um, and, and haplogic. Haplogic is the algorithm and map source is the, is the portal that people use for donor selection. Uh, so histocompatibility laboratories don't necessarily use that map source tool uh, directly, but, but we often advise on, on cases for, for uh, stem cell um, transplant and sometimes with donor selection. We don't at Tulane, but uh, I, I didn't really know that until recently when I started training as a lab director that we don't really get involved in that as much as I had expected. I bet you find that frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is a bit, yeah. It, 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 so a lot, of my, uh, a lot of my work since uh, I started at Tulane in 2015 is, is how do we adapt uh, what we develop to all the data sets we develop, like haplotype frequency data, high resolution haplotype frequency data, and, and, and some of the data standards for capturing intermediate resolution data. 
how, how do we get that? How do we start using all of that in, in organ transplant? Um, so, so right now you think about how do we enter in an HLA typing for a deceased donor in the organ allocation system? So even though we have this intermediate resolution typing uh, from the assay, uh, that the data from that intermediate resolution typing um, in that form never leaves the laboratory, never gets into the allocation system. So we're just trying to figure out what antigen should go in there, right? Uh, oh my gosh. And if you're watching us on YouTube, like yeah. all the faces, can you see all the faces? Are you guys making these faces with us? Like Eric and I are here like, yes, we hate that. Everybody, everybody should be making these faces, but you're going to fix that, Lauren. You're, you're, you're working to fix that. You've, so you, you were, you were um, going into, you have created some tools um, to help us in, in that regard. Um, please do tell. Well, yeah, so so uh, I would say the first big project that uh, we we did to adapt uh, stem cell registry data for organ transplant is the new uh, CPRA calculation. So this measures the percent of the organ donor pool that's incompatible with the transplant candidate based on their HLA antibody profile. And around 2017, uh, the, the system allowed us to enter uh, allele-specific uh, unacceptable antigens, but those weren't, weren't counted towards the CPRA calculation because the, the donor typing data that was used as the reference panel is all cap, was all captured in antigen level. So, so we, we replaced the, that data with, uh, with a huge uh, stem cell registry donor data set of over 2 million donors type by next generation sequencing methods. And so now the, the calculator, it was implemented in, in January, 2023. And uh, I, I built this prototype calculator um, I, and, and put it up on this, on this website that I have called Transplant Toolbox. And so everybody was able to test it out and see that it, it's, it's comprehensive and accurate. And so it's, it's, it's now being used for allocation and determining uh, points and priority for transplant candidates on the waiting list. Uh, so the, so uh, that one was probably the easiest thing to start with because it, it can be done sort of independently of a lot of the rest of the uh, uh, parts of the allocation system. So we still have this issue, of course, that the, the, the typing data that goes into the system is, is being represented at antigen level instead of uh, 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 intermediate resolution or, or, or high resolution. So uh, there's still more work to be done and uh, there, there's a lot of prerequisites for that to occur. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. And I mean, I think the good and the bad of it, right, is that there's a lot still to be done, right? Uh, the three of us are still relatively early-ish in our careers. I'm probably one of the oldest ones here. We're young. Um, yeah, see, uh, and so that's that's a good thing, I think, is there's still a lot to be done. And I want to first off applaud you for a number of the things that you just touched on. But I'm really interested to see what where do you think where should we be? How do we go from where we are today and some of the issues that you pointed out and get to where I think the collective we think we should be? What are what are the hurdles you see? What how do we cross that, you know, divide? Right. 
So the, the first thing is just to start to get this intermediate resolution or high resolution typing data into the system, you know, uh, like the allocation system, I'm talking UNAT in the US. Uh, so, th so the first thing is to start collecting it. Um, and so there are, there are some data standards for that, uh, that uh, the, the team at, at National Marrow Donor Program in Bioinformatics developed. So there's a, there's a genotype list string format that uh, um, uh, can allow you to represent an, uh, an ambiguous uh, HLA typing. And, and there are some other uh, format standards around that to package the uh, typing data. So there's uh, HML, the histoimmunogenetics markup language. And then there's also a way to package it into uh, uh, data formats for electronic medical records uh, like HL7 FHIR. So eventually uh, we could get to the point where an HLA typing can, can move between electronic medical record systems and lab information systems and, uh, and registries. Uh, so uh, I, I hope we get to the point where, you know, everybody owns their genetic data and it can go to, to who needs it with permission. So that's, uh, that's the first thing is, is collecting it, right? And, so that, and then the next part of it is how do we use it for, for deciding who should get offered an organ, right? Um, so so that, that's the next step. And, and there's a lot of issues there too. So the, but the first step is just collecting. Um, so I, I know that the, the Histocompatibility Committee um, it, it, of, uh, of OPTN is, is looking towards this future where we're going to be typing deceased donors uh, with rapid uh, next generation sequencing methods. So we'll get, a, we'll get an allele level typing on, well, a lot of the donors, but you, you can't even um, put in a lot of the alleles into the system, even if you know that they have it. So it's the, the only um, alleles that are represented in UNAP right now are those that are on um, antibody single antigen B panels. So, uh, that so there are a few things that need to happen first, right? So uh, the, there's uh, it has to the system has to fully support our you know the the World Health Organization nomenclature, and and uh, and then you know an intermediate a way to to send intermediate resolution typing um, uh, needs to be developed, and I, and I think we need ways to transmit the data electronically more easily. Because right now we're we're typing you know HLA types into the system uh, by hand uh, nearly all of the time, as far as I can tell, and uh, the, so there's errors that can occur when human beings are are typing in HLA types into a bunch of different systems. Is it's it's a lot of numbers, uh, and it and it's uh, it, it's hard to look at. So uh, I I think there's a lot of opportunities for improvement there. Yeah, absolutely. Now I know the um, UNIS OPTN is working on a lot of APIs. One of those is a donor API upload, um, not not just for you know PDFs and like peripheral supporting data that you have to read, um, but for the actual listing. 
And I know we all feel like that would be great for recipient typing too, because I don't know about your center, but my center, and I know a lot of others, the HLA labs are not the ones entering that data. The HLA labs are checking that data after it's been entered by a nurse coordinator that's probably gotten little or no HLA training. And that's really concerning. So I think, you know, some of these APIs on the horizon, wow, like we really, really need them and, and really fast. I'm interested in your opinion. You mentioned um, WHO nomenclature and standardizing under that. And yeah, absolutely, because that's, you know, what we're supposed to use um, from a regulatory standpoint. Um do you think there's ever going to be a time when solid organ transplantation transitions to molecular nomenclature like bone marrow transplantation has? Should we do that? What, what in your opinion, do you think is appropriate there? Yes, I, I, the, I, I think we need to do that uh, quickly uh, because, well, that that's what the data looks like that we're getting from these assays. So Right now, we're sort of straddling in between this uh, antigen-based nomenclature and the new and the the WHO nomenclature. So we're really treating HLA um, for the most part as we did before we could even uh, sequence the genes, and we were just typing with with uh, sera and antibodies and by sera by serology. So. Uh, so we need a way to, to translate between those two systems because that's really still the way we assess antibodies and how we're representing antibody specificities in the system. So uh, we, we need to gradually move towards, uh, towards molecular nomenclature and then thinking about, well, um, well trying, there's the problem of course of trying to extrapolate from the, the patterns that we see on these single antigen bead assays to, to what other alleles uh, are, are going to be uh, incompatible. So uh, we, we have all these, uh, all these tools for uh, determining, well, we have the eplet paradigm that, well, we're trying to predict where these antibodies are binding, what polymorphisms they're, they're recognizing. And that's sort of moving us into the molecular nomenclature. So we need to have, to be able to assign epaulets, you need uh, the amino acid sequence of the allele. And you don't always get that from, uh, it, it, it's not always uh, unambiguous when you have an antigen level typing, so. Right, and I love the fact that DP kind of forces our hand like you've got to you've got to type DP at this resolution already. We can list unacceptables uh, by Eplet, you know, for DP already. You know, so like why can't we extend that to the other HLA loci that we've known about for a long time? Agreed. Yes. So so DP is a really interesting case because with DP we're actually forced to choose a, a pair a single pair of alleles to put in the system, but our typing methods aren't necessarily uh, resolving to just to exclude all those other possible genotypes. So, so uh, it, it does set the stage for, for how, how do we think about how the system would work transitioning over to, to molecular nomenclature completely. So, so with that, yeah, you have to, you have to think about, well, um, what is the, what is the pattern of, of, uh, antibody that you're seeing uh, on the on the antibody assay, and 
what are all the alleles that should be unacceptable for that? And so there are some uh, uh, unacceptable epitopes that were recently added that help uh, that problem where you don't have to list every single DP allele that carries a certain amino acid motif. You can just exclude all of them in one go. So that's, uh, but we, we still have this problem that we're not at, we're not putting the real typing in the system. So, uh, so when, when we do a virtual cross match as, as HLA lab directors, uh, we, we have to open, we have to go in, log into the system and open up a PDF that has the real typing in it because the real typing isn't actually in the database. And then we have to do all this manual analysis that's pretty complex when we're evaluating organ offers. And some cases are especially complex. Like if you have a, if you have a donor with alleles that aren't represented on these single antigen bead panels, you have to, deter, you have to make a prediction about the, what the reactivity against those alleles would be. And, that, and we're, we're doing a lot of that by hand. So it's to really, there's a lot of work to be done in improving the tools and also improving the data that gets into the system. So uh, we, there's a lot of this stuff is, is just being done by hand. And I guess that's good um, for, for us keeping our jobs uh, <laughs> and, and having value because it's really complex analysis but uh, I, I, think, I think it would be easier to, to have some aids in, in being able to do that. No, yeah, I agree. I agree with you, with everything you said, Lauren. And something that sort of strikes me, and I think we often think this, and no one really wants to say it out loud, is the, the allele-level deceased donor paradigm that you touched on, right? Where we sort of need them, right? Where we're... Some people are using applets, some people aren't. You sort of need the allele to really do a good antibody, donor-specific antibody assessment using virtual cross-match like you alluded to. Yet the technology exists. It's not like it's hard to do. In previous episodes on the, on, on the podcast have touched on some of that technology that exists to do that. And I'm curious your thoughts on the thing that's unsaid is UNOS is like the slowest moving beast in the room and the technology exists. And so there's twofold, right? To me, it's the adoption rate of the new technology given a number of limitations. And then the other part is more UNOS centric where we sort of need the UNOS as a big entity to update all of the things that you and Kelly were just mentioning, right? APIs, accepting various forms of standardized inputs. How do, other than continuing to petition them, how do we leverage our collective power to help push UNOS in this direction? Because we're doing it all ourselves. Like you already said, we're already doing it, but I agree with you. The, the burden needs to be removed from Kelly or yourself in, put on to software systems that can basically do this very quickly. So what, what do you think about this? Right, so, uh, well, the, the strategy for the, for the CPRA calculator, rather than just telling them they need to implement something is, is, well, we implemented a prototype on our end first and show them exactly how it worked. And then said, uh, you know, I had a contract with them and 
and shared the code and we you know it uh, solved all of the all of the issues with it and uh, now you know the the prototype and the real system work exactly the same way so I think the the strategy that I have is making these little prototype tools that sort of demonstrate the concepts and how this might work and and that will inspire the real systems that they build and of course taking it from just building a prototype tool like web tool and and building the real system we're talking about takes like 20 times as more as much money because you have you have to do all of the um you know like real production it development and testing and quality assurance and and all of those things so i think that's a good path forward and and so so my i, I so for my my uh faculty job at tulane i'm i'm 50% research and 50% um, clinical lab director. So on the research side, I try to get funding to build these tools. And uh, it's not easy to convince NIH about this because HLA is really difficult for them to understand um, the people reviewing these proposals. So I, I think that's been a challenge for, uh, for everyone that, that is a lab director that's trying to get a research program going is uh, is is where uh, is is HLA is we, we need to make HLA easier to understand for for everyone and make make the problems we're facing like this these issues with virtual cross match interesting enough that NIH would be willing to fund it. So yeah, I think you're you're spot on and you're certainly preaching to the choir uh, with Kelly and myself here and so. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of a lot of us are starting to get involved in this in these sorts of things. Um, you've been in it probably the longest of 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 the people I can think of, right? We've talked to Dr. Nick Brown on the podcast before. He's another lab director that is sort of working on sort of these tools to to aid our you know sort of clinical fun. We describe it as clinical functionality, but it's really all about patients, right? So. I think we do a bad job of pitching it to the powers that be at the NIH and the funding people about that. And so it's probably a collective issue we need to, to work on. But um, I want to thank you very much for, for coming on today, Lauren. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. And I, I'd love to be on again to talk more about uh, about how this research is progressing uh, and, uh, and, and how, how these tools will get uh, integrated into the real allocation system to help our patients. hundred percent. And thank you for all the tools that you've put out there already and all the development that you're doing. The field owes you a large, large thanks. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, let's, let's do more. Welcome back, everybody. Now it is time for the tea, a segment dedicated to answering questions from our listeners. This first question, which is anonymously submitted, is, do you have any tips to stay motivated at work when you feel like you don't have opportunities for advancement as a technologist? Very fair question. And I would venture to say that a lot of technologists feel the way that you do. Um, I don't, my, my opinion um, on this question 
is that there should be opportunities for advancement as technologists. There should be technical supervisor positions. Um, hopefully, I don't love the term career ladder. I love the term career portfolio because it imparts that you don't just have to be a vertical ladder, ladder climber. Um, but most laboratories have um, built-in options for advancement, tech one, tech two, tech three, technical supervisor, supervisor, lab manager. Um, certainly, Ashi has built-in, um, you know, credentialing for advancement, your CHT exam after year one, your CHS exam after year five. And these, um, you know, could be built into career ladders. Uh, and I don't know, just quite frankly, like, you know, if your institution doesn't have those, talk to your manager or supervisor about, um, you know, thinking about a career ladder at your institution. What do you think, Eric? Yeah, I, I think you touched on a lot of things that I agree with. I do agree that there should be some path. Doesn't I agree with you? It doesn't have to necessarily be straight vertical. It should be what it is for that specific, what you want as an individual. Um, I would say that some of it, I think, is on the manager and directors of, of those laboratories to not only provide opportunities that are like not in the like normal realm of the like consistent day-to-day -day patient testing, whether that be research activities, QA, QI activities, um, you know, and I, an important aspect for, for us is always trying to bring back why we're all here, right? So how, what we're doing, whether it's a QA journey, it's a research project or our day-to-day -day patient testing is the value that we're bringing to patients and their families. Um, and trying to remember that you are one of the warriors behind the scenes that plays a vital role in keeping that patient going, best outcomes available for them. And so I think all of these things are things that in general, we should all be focused on and uh, trying to, you know, keep a positive attitude about it. Yeah, and I would say, let your own strengths and abilities be your motivation. Um, you know, do you have a unique skill set that you can talk to your manager or supervisor or director about applying to your job in the laboratory? Are you very detail-oriented? Would you be good for research projects, um, leading validations, leading innovations in your laboratory? Uh, maybe even leading your laboratory, you know, like in a new direction, trying to help research, you know, optimizations and lean processes in your laboratory. Um, lots of people have skills that they're not putting to use um, in their day jobs. Um, so, you know, try to stay motivated by what you're good at and taking what you're really good at and turning it into your career. Um, so that, that was a really great question. And thank you uh, to the person who submitted that question. Um, second question, what approach do you recommend to directors who are working to acquire new technology to bring a lab up to date? Um, this person uh, notes that following COVID, um, they have found that organizations are making it more difficult to spend money on new and improved technology. And that's a really interesting and timely question. You know, maybe it's that the institution spent so much money on bringing up COVID testing and the equipment associated with that, that they've kind of outspent their budget for the next few years. 
Uh, maybe it's space issues. You know, it could be all kinds of things that are barring an institution um, from from letting you kind of spend the money that you need to to spend. Um, I would say that you know your clinical partners are fantastic advocates for you. They want you to modernize. They want you to become more lean. Um, because you'll deliver, um, you know, your results faster and more accurately. So talk to them about helping you build a proposal. I would argue now that a lot of the new technology uh, can actually be cheaper than what we're currently using. Uh, in our laboratory, when we crunched the numbers, we found that if we were typing our solid organ patients and donors by NGS, it was cheaper than applying SSO. Um, so you can do reagent rentals. Maybe you don't even need to buy the equipment. If you're going to um, have a purchase uh, reagent contract, you can get equipment for free as part of that uh, in a reagent rental agreement. So think of innovative ways um, to get the things you need. What do you think, Eric? No, so first, I agree with many of the stuff you said. Second would be that uh, something you know we've been pretty successful with here is going beyond just uh, your own four walls, if you will, right? Like looking at the other labs at your institution um, and seeing what they have, right? And so if there's shared instrumentation, is this is there a leverage point there to say, okay, well, we're going to use it for our purposes, right? Uh, an aluminum IC for HLA typing, right? But is your maybe molecular pathology, molecular genetics, whatever it may be at your institution, can they also utilize that same instrument for cancer diagnostics, for example. Many, many areas of your clinical pathology area can utilize that. So that sort of is one option there. Two is uh, like sort of what you said, you have to sort of get into the details about what it's going to cost and what it's going to save or what's your return on investment, ROI. Um, is something to to consider there and you know how it impacts sort of the finances of the department, your lab, whatever is relevant for your situation. Those are a couple of ways that we've been successful at uh, implementing that. I would say too, the, the person who submitted this question mentioned software as being a limitation. I would say, honestly, if software is a limitation, you're gonna have to do this very uncomfortable thing in pulling patient safety data. How often is your laboratory having um, analytic and post-analytic related errors? Um, and you're gonna have to present that data to your hospital and explain to them that this is a patient safety issue and that good, reliable software with as much um, automated processing of data as possible is necessary for patient care and patient safety and patient data integrity. And that, my friends, is the T. So don't forget, if you need career advice or advice on how to deal with something happening in your lab, visit our podcast page at ashi-hla.org backslash page backslash ashi podcast, or email us at info at ashi-hla.org and write the T in the subject line. I know this has got you fired up, Dr. Weimer. What did you think uh, of today's episode? Oh yeah, I mean, I I've loved the stuff that Lauren's been doing for for a long time, and I think that uh, the collective we have a lot to do to to move the bar to help 
our patients uh, have better outcomes and get transplanted sooner. And, you know, uh, I think that's, that's something we all want. I think the execution is hard. Yeah, everything, you know, everything is still so manual. It, it never fails to shock um, my clinical partners that I don't just, you know, like sit here and push a button and get an answer or push a button and get an answer. Um, when they come to the lab, you know, for like rotations and things, they see what we're actually doing. I get nothing but shock and awe. Yeah, you know, this is a very common thing I've heard from many, many of our colleagues. You know, it's not a CBC. No offense to the CBC people. We do one test and it's a PRA. Well, that's that's when we get a lot. <laughs> but no, I I think I think what um Lauren is doing is so important because we have all this data and be behind the scenes, we're like manually applying all this data from all of these different buckets. And, you know, people like Lauren are taking all of this valuable data that we're compiling and putting it to use. Something so simple as, you know, being able to list an allelic antibody as an unacceptable antigen and having it count for something, you know, because before his, you know, before his change and colleagues change, you know, you could list them, but not only did it not block offers, it didn't even give patients, you know, additional points. Yeah. And horrendous. It seems so simple, but it takes so long to get these things done. Thank goodness there are people out there sticking with it and getting them done. Yeah, the implementation process is is slow and many reasons I agree with, but I think that, uh, you know, he touched on a number of things and I really like that he touched on the idea of standardization of transfer of information um, with some of the approaches that he talked about. And you mentioned the APIs that that the, that UNOS is, is working on for various functions. And I do want to call out that at the annual meeting in the fall, there will be an in, uh, informatics session, um, which will be highlight some of these issues and what's being done in those areas to, to improve and reduce those roadblocks there. I'm so excited about that session um, because I, I feel like people get real ingrained in their process and they don't move forward and they don't change. This is an area where really without too much difficulty, we can move forward and we can change. So everybody, everybody please attend um, this uh, session at the annual meeting about analytics and, and imputation. It, it will improve your practice for the better. I'm, I'm sure it will mine. Yeah, I, I'm pretty enthusiastic about it. Um, yeah, I think, these are the tools that we need to to move forward with with everything. And uh, you know, I encourage everyone to to try and partner together because I think I've said this before, our individual authority and power here is is limited in some scope. And so the collective we have a lot of uh, power here. We do indeed. All right, guys. Well, until next time. Bye.